Hello and welcome to everyone listening. This is Renee Sills, host of the Embodied Astrology Podcast, and I'm so excited to offer you another special extended guest episode today. Last month, I had the chance to sit down with a dear friend, colleague, and big personal inspiration of mine, Aisha Edwards, to talk about her work and her wisdom. T. Aisha Edwards is a somatic trauma therapist who is dedicated and enthusiastic about integrating mind and body in holistic mental health care. She understands that painful life experiences not only undermine our quality of life, but also our capacity for connection and our physical health. Aisha uses approaches informed by interpersonal neuroscience, traditional Chinese medicine, somatic psychology, and Western indigenous herbalism to support clients and to help them overcome the barriers between talk and healing. Because healing has a special meaning for those living with intergenerational trauma, Aisha's heart mission is to address and unburden the impacts of socialized oppressions for people of color and queer and trans folks. And she is dedicated to culturally responsive treatment across the intersectional spectrum. Aisha believes wholeheartedly that every person living with trauma can find and embody the unbroken. Folks, I can't tell you how happy I am to introduce you to Aisha. Over the past few years of getting to know this magical person, she has pushed me in so many ways to embody my full self, to heal, to open, to live, to love, to laugh. We had a long conversation, and I hope you'll enjoy listening in with us as we talk about psychology, mindfulness, trauma, race, racism, interracial relationships, intergenerational healing, astrology, and more. If you're listening from Portland or from the greater Pacific Northwest area, I also really want to encourage you to sign up for one of Aisha's upcoming workshops. Within From Without is a three-part workshop or series of workshops that teaches self-healing for trauma, and Aisha will be offering this series twice more this summer in Portland. I cannot recommend Aisha enough as a facilitator for trauma-informed work. If you're interested in working with your own trauma, if you're a facilitator that wants more information, Aisha is such a valuable resource in our community. Please look to the show notes to find information on registration, location, and times. Finally, if you enjoy this episode, share it with your friends and family, repost it to social media, and link it to your therapeutic resources. If you'd like to hear more episodes such as this one, please consider supporting Embodied Astrology with a one-time or recurring donation. Every dollar you give goes to the production of this show. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Enjoy. I'm really excited to talk to you. We've been talking about so many things. So many things. So many things. For a while. Mm-hmm. Um, it is Monday. It's June 10th. Aisha just came over. We had lunch. Mm-hmm. We sat in the kitchen, caught up, chatted, and now we are recording. And we've got a lot of interesting stuff that we want to talk about. But first, Aisha, yeah. I'm really curious about who you are and how you've become this person that you are. Okay. And I know a little bit about you and everything I know about you is um, pretty incredible. And I just want everyone who's listening to get a little bit of a glimpse into who you are. And when we were talking about introductions a moment ago, you had such a wonderful suggestion, which is mm-hmm. to begin with your name. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me why you wanted to start there and what that means for you? Yeah. So, um, a while back, I started listening to uh, this podcast called Medicine Stories, and <clears throat> the host, Amber Magnolia Hill, starts out every podcast asking her guests the question around um, t- 
tell me about your name because your name is your first medicine. So as you know, a vibrational medicine or like essentially like the music of like what informs who you are for your whole life because you hear it again and again and again and again and again. And we know that there's so much um, wisdom in like sonic healing and acutonics and your name is like a form of acutonic that you hear for your whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, as I've been listening to this podcast, I will from time to time ask people about, you know, what's their relationship to their name? How do they feel their name? And the answers are always really powerful, like really powerful. And in particular in black culture, um, in the diaspora, naming is really important. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a part of becoming a self and moving away from a, a system, a systemic um, oppression that has destroyed yourself. I mean, like one of the qualities of how um, slaves were treated in the South is to be given only a single name, or to be given again the surname of their slave owner, or um, to be called boy, to be called out of their name. So naming and and the relationship of name is just so important for blackness and black people. And um, so I just feel really excited about the question and um, am deepening my relationship with my own name. Tell us about your name. (laughs) So my name is Tiffany Aisha Edwards. Um, There's a lot about my name. So I hated my first name for much of my life. Um, My parents are Jamaican. They emigrated to the United States about a year before I was born, a little over. And um, my sister's name um, is Nikisha Ayana Edwards. And um, my sister was born in Jamaica. When my parents emigrated, they quickly realized that having a black-sounding name is a liability. Mm. And so they gave me the first name Tiffany as protection to protect me. Um, I didn't learn that until I changed my name in 2010 when I started to ask people to call me by my middle name. I've always liked my middle name. I've always had an affinity for my middle name. My middle name always felt right to me. Whereas my first name, I always associated with Tiffany Amber Thiessen from Saved by the Bell (laughs) and like this very particular form of like white femininity that's really um, vapid and um, unsubstantive Mm -hmm. and um, to not be taken seriously. And as a person, that just doesn't fit me at all. Um, And it's funny when I tell people now that my first name is Tiffany, they always look at me like, what? (laughs) Um, But in the last uh, couple of years, I've been healing my relationship with my first name. Um, I recently learned that my first name is derived from the Greek um, form of the Festival of the Epiphany, which feels very, like, aligned with who I am as a person um, and, you know, as being a person who is constantly sort of like moving through um, one uh, iteration of self to another and like each iteration coming with this like, you know, beautiful sort of like, you know, blossoming or this beautiful like light bulb or like this awakening, um, the Festival of the Epiphany feels like resonant in my being. And so there was some wisdom in that name, even if it was a name that was designed to be um, 
a shield Mm -hmm. in some ways. And I, you know, in 2010 had reached enough sort of personal development and emotional wellness to ask people to call me by the name that I wanted to be called by, which is Aisha. And I remember vividly the day that I sent out that like Facebook message. It was probably at eight o'clock at night. And like many things in my life, I had sort of like been thinking about it for a very long time and then finally just like did it on a whim. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sent out this email or this um, Facebook post basically saying like from here on out, I would prefer to be called by this name. Please call me by this name. And then laid in bed for probably three hours panicked and terrified and disgusted with myself Whoa. of like how dare I ask people to do this wow yeah um and it took probably about a year to feel normal having other people call me Aisha and it took probably about two years to feel normal introducing myself as Aisha but um that I'm getting teary as I'm talking <laughs> that like experience was again, inviting in that vibrational medicine that I really needed mm-hmm. at the time and that has become the sort of, like, cornerstone of who I am. Um, you know, there's sort of, like, the before Aisha and after, mm-hmm. and those people feel really different to mm-hmm. me. Um, so Aisha has two, two um, language systems that it is associated with. It's associated with Arabic and it's associated with Swahili. I believe in Swahili it means love, but don't quote me on that. Feel free to give me some feedback about that. And um, in Arabic, which is the form of it that I resonate more with, it um, is usually pronounced Aisha, and it either uh, means uh, she who lives or she who must be obeyed. And um, it is associated with one of the mythological figures from that region of the world, And, um, like, she's also a badass. (laughs) Um, I don't know a ton about that mythology. That's something that, as I'm developing more of an anti-colonial lens, that I'm trying to get more into is mythology and spiritual practice and traditional healing patterns and that sort of thing. But that's on my agenda of things to learn more about. So that um, feels very energetically potent to me and also feels really strongly, like, who I am Mm -hmm. because, you know, one of the things that I think is really true about me is I like do not, I do not back down when people don't listen to me. Mm -mm. Um, and being able to, to bring forward the things that I feel like are important and powerful and meaningful, the things that I've like worked very hard in my life to heal from and therefore have wisdom around to be able to bring to bear in the world um, feels really potent. And those two names um, have that sort of like magic in them. Yeah. That helps me be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel in knowing you that those names are so represented in Mm. how I've experienced you. Oh, thank you. (laughs) First of all, as a person who, and people are listening to you so they can hear the clarity in your voice, Mm. but what you all 
uh, aren't perceiving is Aisha's presence, mm. which is so um, clear and strong and exceptional. Like mm. you're probably the most fashionable friend I have. Every time I see you, I'm like, oh my God, this woman is an embodiment of all things magical. And this festival of the epiphany kind of, um, you know, and it might seem superficial or something, but the way that you use color and shape and your aesthetic is always kind of like an epiphany mm. on that level where I'm like, I never knew that that could happen. <laughs> How did you oh, do it? Thank you. And then I think in, in a lot of the conversations we've had since we've gotten to know each other that we're constantly talking about heavy shit mm. and really go like going into some pretty intense conversations, asking each other for a lot of accountability and you don't back down. And there is a very commanding presence that you have, mm. but there's also so much room for epiphany. And I love that about you, that you can hold this juxtaposition of authority and total playfulness. <laughs> I wanted to pull up your chart okay. so that I can reference it. So let me just pull that up real quick. Well, in thinking about your name and then thinking about your chart, you have this um, aspect that you know, people have, but it is exceptional when planets are placed on the cardinal angles. So like your rising sign is one of the cardinal angles and you have Neptune at 26 degrees of Sagittarius right on your rising sign. So first of all, 26 degrees of Sagittarius is the center of our galaxy. Wow. <laughs> it's this place called the Galactic Center. If you get a That's telescope, awesome. you look down the, you know, towards the center of the Milky Way, it is at that degree point of late Sagittarius. Mm. And Neptune, out of all of the planetary figures in Western astrology, Neptune is probably the most spiritual mm. when we think of the way that spirituality has really been um, presented in this era as... Um, something that is both the material and the non-material. It's like the all-pervasive. Mm -hmm. um, so she who lives or she who has the authority, but also this kind of sense of epiphany of like, oh, that's it. Oh, that's it. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's it. I just love that um, the the rising sign, the ascendant is, in some ways it's your mask, but it's also the bias. It's the lens that you're looking out at the world mm -hmm. towards. So we have this goddess of infinite possibility. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Aisha, how has your name been embodied? Like, how have you lived into this essence that you carry? Um, you know, it's funny. I've been thinking a lot. I don't know if I'm going to answer your question exactly, but I've been thinking a lot about um, the, the moving into the authority mm -hmm. that I hold and how, as a woman... Um, a person who identifies as a woman, it's really hard to do that. The expectation from the outside is essentially that you acquiesce or that you engage in some kind of submissive process. And so I, you know, I've, I've been spending a lot of time noticing the places or the ways in which I diminish that energy. And, you know, in my like less well days, I, was reflexively in that place. I mean, there was just, you know, if there was any rising into self, it was always met with uh, shame, mm -hmm. you know, either internally or that, you know, something would happen externally to sort of stamp that down. And um, 
I've been doing a lot of like trying to work my way either out of those, those systemic, um, submissive patterns or, um, to at least do so in an, in an embodied way so that when I'm doing it, I'm doing it strategically or I'm doing it for utility or I'm doing it protectively and I'm not doing it simply because that's just what's expected of me. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so like, I don't know if I can put into words exactly how my name energy transforms into um, physical action, but I can say that my name energy, I feel more potently and um, feel less of a um, movement toward diminishing that energy and, and feel much more of a like resentment of spaces and people and um, and organizations that attempt to to push me to have to reduce that energy to make others feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like that's also, I mean, it's something that you so strongly carry in your work and your work with clients, mm-hmm. your work with organizations and groups mm-hmm. is this, I mean, demanding kind of a relentless demanding for epiphany, like let's wake the fuck <laughs> <Yeah>. up. <laughs> yeah. And, um, I mean, there's a gentleness in how you facilitate, but there's also, Again, so much clarity and authority mm-hmm. in what you bring. Mm-hmm. That feels um, that that feels right. I think about um, the first radical meditation for people of color that I uh, facilitated, and I remember up until that point there had never been like a formal um, leading about like Buddhist meditation, even though the the person who started. Um, radical meditation, you know, grew up in, in a tradition of, of Buddhist meditation. And I felt like it was important if we were going to create a space around um, mindfulness and meditation to have some framework for that. Because if you're coming into a space and you don't have any framework for it, like what are you holding on to as you're in that space? What does the space become? It becomes formless and, and really anything can creep into that formlessness. Um, and so without having a sort of like some structure or some form to, to hold on to as a beginner, then you can actually start to like move into something more meaningful or understand the formlessness in a better way. But if you don't have anything, it really mm-hmm. you get sloppy. Right. So I felt like it was important. And as I introduced the conversation, people were getting really upset you know, um, there was one person in particular who stands out who um, felt a lot of fear, at least I could, I was reading it as fear at the time, around being seen as a cultural appropriator. And, um, and so there was this really gentle exchange around like, well, what if we just sit with that energy mm-hmm. rather than reflexively try to like get away from it? And how much can we open to ourselves if we're if we're willing to just be with the experience in front of us? Mm-hmm. And I feel like um, in my own healing process, in the healing processes that I facilitate with other people, that is always the heart of everything that I'm doing. Is like if we can just hold the space to be with whatever's coming up, what fruit or um, fruition might come from that. Mm-hmm. You know? 
So let's take a pause for a second. And um, if we could, or if you could just tell the listeners, what is it that you do? Oh, <laughs> that's probably important. Um, so I'm a somatic trauma therapist. Um, I originally uh, was trained as um, a mental health therapist. I um, have been a therapist for 12 years and was trained in a fairly traditional way. I went to Pacific University. It was in their doctoral program and, of course, dropped out after I got my master's because, like, who needs all that bureaucratic institution? Um, But going to Pacific was very grateful to excuse me, encounter two of my mentors um, who continue to, their, like, tutelage continues to be a part of my internal matrix today. Um, And those two uh, professors um, are Gestalt therapists. Mm -hmm. And so Gestalt was, like, the kind of original healing home that I found. Gestalt, in many ways, can be described as... um, the therapy of what is. It's a phenomenological therapy, which basically means that it enters into your subjective experience and it enters deeply into your subjective experience. And in so many ways, Gestalt is a, goes hand in hand with um, Buddhist psychology and, and mindfulness therapies and all of these things, except it predated all of those. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't predate Buddhism, but... <laughs> It predated the ways in which Buddhist psychology and and mindfulness meditations are integrated into Western psychology. Um, And, you know, for me, it became my personal, I guess, internal framework for wellness. Um, It helped me begin to understand and know parts of myself that I didn't have access to at all, given how I grew up. Um, and, you know, it, it still is the cornerstone of everything that I do with my patients today. Um, since then, I've done a lot of other kinds of training. So I do a lot of work that integrates traditional medicine practices and energetic healing um, and traumatology um, and I do a touch-based therapy for complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, most of the patients that I work with have experiences of interpersonal violence or interpersonal neglect or both. Um, and that, for me, feels like a very potent place to work. Um, many of my patients also have other forms of trauma, surgical trauma, car accidents, um, natural disasters, etc. But... Um, you know, for me, the interpersonal violence piece and the attachment work is is the most profound, especially the attachment work, because that's usually um, early developmental trauma, so trauma that's occurred under the age of three or for people who have really um, intergenerational trauma. So I work a lot with um, people of color, particularly um, uh, folks who identify as Latino, Latinx, um, and um, folks who identify as African-American and folks who identify as Native. Those are like the three primary populations that I have experience with of uh, people of color. Um, and then um, I also work a lot with queer folks, trans folks. Um, those are sort of like those working in those communities of like marginalized oppression um, is like my heart. It's, it's the work I find the most rewarding because... 
people are coming in with so much intergenerational transmission on their shoulders and being able to do with them both the healing work of their own generational um, range, but also getting to do ancestral work with them is really powerful. Mm. So I integrate um, three different forms of therapy. One is called um, regulation and resilience or nurturing resilience, depending on who you're talking to. It's an offshoot of somatic experiencing. It's the touch-based work that I do. That's the primary work um, that helps to re-regulate the central nervous system. Um, It has some similarities to Reiki and craniosacral therapies. Um, And then I do a type of work that I'm going to be doing a workshop on um, that's called Trauma-Informed Stabilization. And that uh, is by Janina Fisher. Um, And that integrates a type of approach called sensory motor therapy, which is basically a more scientifically oriented or contemporary version of Gestalt. And um, it also integrates a type of um, approach called internal family systems. And so it, it, it helps to blend those two approaches together from a like in trauma-informed perspective. And um, that usually looks like we're working with parts of self so that those parts of self are not acting in uh, opposition to one another, that they're acting more harmoniously together. And then the last piece that is like kind of the bread and butter of my work is um, I do a type of approach called the neuroemotional technique that um, comes out of the chiropractic world, actually. And it involves manual muscle testing, meridian system clearing, and homeopathy. And that work has been some of the most powerful that I've experienced for clearing um, and desensitizing trauma, but also clearing ancestral trauma and working with things that are actually not the person who's sitting in front of me. So ancestral trauma is something that I think about a lot. I talk about it a lot, and it is a term that is really coming up in consciousness in certain groups of people. Oh, yes. What is ancestral trauma? (laughs) Please. So, um, you know, maybe I can talk about it a little bit from the perspective that um, Resme Menachem, I think is how you pronounce the person's name, um, who wrote My Grandmother's Hands, um, he really quotes it as uh, ancestral trauma is essentially like the transmission of trauma physiology down the ancestral line. So if we think about adaptive strategies that the body experienced in one set of, in one socio-historical context, in order to survive that socio-historical context, those adaptations get passed down both at a physical level, so like both at a genetic level, epigenetically, when we have um, trauma physiology or, or stress response that does not resolve in our body, it changes our DNA in order to adaptively address the environment in front of us. And so that gets passed down genetically, but then also it gets passed down behaviorally. So one of the really powerful um, examples that Dr. Uh, Joy DeGruy uh, gives, who wrote Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome, is she talks about like, you know, if if you're on a plantation and the master comes up and there's a you know mother a slave mother who's washing clothes and you know she's a son who's 
five or so, and the master says, oh, your son's really coming along, mm-hmm. you know, her response is going to be, oh, no, mm-hmm. you know, this one's dumb. He's lazy. Mm-hmm. He can't do nothing. Mm-hmm. Her response to protect him is to denigrate him, mm-hmm. which makes sense in that histor- socio-historical context. But as we've moved out of slavery and we've moved into a world where, you know, granted there is still a great deal of oppression around us, those same patterns that continue are lost, essentially, intergenerational transmissions. They are cultural retentions that look like a part of the cultural context, but are not actually a part of the cultural context anymore. They're things that your mother's 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 mother did, and we don't know why they do that anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like if we think about Thanksgiving and we cook turkey in this way in my family because my mother's mother's mother mother did that. Mm -hmm. It's the same sort of process but more loaded. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are these these retentions that exist in families of refugees or people who've been through, you know, long expanses of war, or torture, or things along these lines. And we can think about um, the legacy of slavery as like the greatest holocaust of humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we can think about these cultural retentions as, as behaviors or actions or um, physiologically reactive dynamics that no longer have value, but did have extreme value at one time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do you see this kind of trauma coming up in in both your individual clients and patients, but also in the world? In oh my god! Kind of <laughs> Easy question. Oh my god! That is Easy like question. the biggest, hardest question <laughs> of all time, um, because it's. literally every single moment of every day, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, So with, I'll I'll speak for my patients because, you know, I'm intimately with them on a regular basis. I think one of the things that's really important to understand about intergenerational transmission is that it begins before you're even born. Mm -hmm. So it begins in the womb, you know, um, the, the synchronization of um, the fetal body to the mother's body is, um, is complete. I mean, there is no, there's no distinction or distinguishment. So whatever reactivity um, they have in their body, the child is also going to have in their own body. There's even, you know, these... Um, uh, images that are are out out there in the research world of um, fetuses having um, like contraction responses, so where they go into essentially the fetal position where they like tense um, when the mother is stressed. Mm-hmm. So you know if you're coming into the world already sort of preloaded with these transmissions, you're coming into the world with um, you know, an amygdala that's already reactive and like scanning for threat. Mm-hmm. You're coming into the world with a body that's already a little, um, you know, energetically uh, hypersensitive, um, where maybe it's harder for you to develop your body boundary, etc. And then if you have around you a community of of caregivers, a milieu of caregivers who are either exhausted, overwhelmed, overworked, angry, have a lot of fight, flight, or freeze in their own bodies, 
um, where it's physically unsafe, where you have all of these factors that do not support your capacity to thrive, then the body begins to figure out, like any animal, how do I do this? Mm -hmm. And so we develop these, um, you know, ways of being from before we even have language to navigate an untenable world. And I think this is why I have such a tenderness for working with people um, who have intergenerational trauma and who specifically fall on the marginalization spectrum is because, you know, so much of this shit that that we have been dealt mm-hmm. um, is not ours, and mm-hmm. yet we still have to navigate the world with it. And so, you know, so much of the time I work with adults, and so much of the time I spend with my clients really reinforcing that the, that the body that they are living in has never been aligned to be able to navigate the world, this busy, complicated, challenging world around them. I mean, frankly, at this point, really no human body <laughs> is designed for this busy, complicated, sick world around us. But, but for those people whose central nervous systems and brain body functioning are compromised from even before they come out of the womb or even before they begin to have language, it's uh, unfair um, expectation for them to be able to function like quote-unquote normal people, Mm -hmm. people who had the opportunity to develop a securely attached environment in which they um, were seen and heard and felt and in which their Um, autonomic nervous systems were able to develop in a functional way. So Mm -hmm. part of the first piece of work that I do with people is about reorganizing essentially the autonomic nervous system Mm -hmm. um, to the best of the ability that I have within my scope of practice. Mm -hmm. I often work with other providers who have other scopes of practice in order to help facilitate that and and, um, um, move that ball forward Mm -hmm. as well. And just in case someone doesn't know, the autonomic nervous system is? <laughs> uh, the autonomic nervous system is a part of our peripheral nervous system. Um, it is the part of our um, body that sort of communicates between our organ systems, our muscle system, our um, you know, uh, cardiovascular and immune systems, and the brain, mm-hmm. the central nervous system in the brain, the skull brain as mm-hmm. um Bonnie Badenoch calls it. Mm -hmm. So we have sort of like a a gut brain, we have a heart brain, and then we have a skull brain. And those are the sort of big centers of our our central and autonomic nervous systems. Right. So the autonomic nervous system is also the the way that our nervous systems keep our bodies functioning mm-hmm. before we can even do the stuff right. that we think about our nervous systems right. with, like paying attention or responding right. or something like that. Yeah. It's a system of our body that, for the most part, is basically managing our, our regulation in day-to-day life. Right. So it's the thing that's always functioning, whether we're paying attention to it or not. It's the thing that keeps your heart beating. It's the thing that keeps you breathing. It's the thing that keeps you shitting. It's the thing that keeps you peeing, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I'm thinking about and hearing when you're talking um, in kind of this larger context of thinking about uh, systemic oppression or, or a cultural process of, um, of 
trauma-informed care Mm -hmm. and what does that mean or to move into a a period of time when we're thinking about more equity or something like Mm -hmm. that is that systemic oppression really is a a cellular um, experience. It it begins, yeah, Yeah. in the cells. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, It is a cellular experience and that if we think about each cell of the human body as a fractal of the entire body system, and then the human themselves as a fractal of our community. And then the, the, the community is a fractal of our like city state and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like it just keeps metastasizing outward. Mm-hmm. And so if there is, you know, sickness in the, in the communication systems of the body or the way that the, the sort of life forces of the body are speaking to one another, there isn't a way to be able to navigate the world in a healthy way. Right. And so the, the very first place of healing um, these, like, systemic ills, and, and I'm, like, all about the people who are out there, you know, doing the policy change and, um, you know, and, and thinking about things more so on these, like, um, written uh, mm-hmm. or didactic levels. But I'm much more interested in how do you live every day? Mm-hmm. Like, those, those changes make a hill of beans if, like, at the end of the day, you're miserable or you're incapable of connecting with other people or, you know, your um, felt sense of safety is always compromised. Yeah. And so what I'm most interested in is, is at that cellular level or at the organ level or at the organ system level, how is that person doing? Do they have a felt sense of safety? Yeah. Do they have the ability to rest? Yeah. You know, do they have the ability to let down mm-hmm. and to be able to look around? Because that space of letting down into rest is where joy lives, is where compassion lives, is where um, a felt sense of like contentedness and hope lives. Mm-hmm. It's where connection lives. You know, it's where belonging lives. And if we're ever going to um, succeed as a society or as a fucking species belonging has to be there. Yeah. You know, we have to belong to each other. We have to belong to ourselves. We have to belong to the world around us, the literal earth underneath our feet. Mm-hmm. Because if we can't feel ourselves or we can't feel anybody else, mm-hmm. if we can't feel the dying of the earth, mm-hmm. which you're talking about is going to happen in basically 2050, mm-hmm. you know, like we don't have anything. Right. So what does this look like then in a in a, a larger culture, city, town, country, that is uh, constantly in a trauma process. I mean, there's definitely more conversation around systemic oppression, around um, hi- historic violence and, and what's happened with the legacy of slavery for African Americans, for example. But really, the systems continue to be traumatizing. Yeah. So when you're working with clients or you're working with groups of people that are experiencing trauma day to day, moment to moment, how do you help them? How do you allow for this moment of mm-hmm. pause and, and reflection and, and inner presence? Um, I think, so there's a, there are a lot of like teachers that I feel like have influenced the way that I hold this. Um, one of the things that I say a lot um, that comes from various different teachers. Um, Kathy Kane, who's my mentor around um, the touch-based work, um, Adrienne Marie Brown's work, who's a social justice um, activist and leader and educator who does a lot of like um, somatically driven social justice work. 
Um, the folks at um, Generative Somatics, um, Ray Johnson is another person whose work has been really influential for me. Like, I think about what does leaning into joy look like? So, you know, so much of the time when we're doing justice work or when we're thinking about these oppressive systems, we are in a space of contraction. And if we think about evolutionarily what um, the human, what like helped the human species thrive, it wasn't being in a space of contraction. You know, it's being in a space of belongingness and safety. And so moving always back toward what creates felt sense of belonging and what creates felt sense of safety and using that as the vehicle to help to grow whatever comes next. So it's not to say, you know, don't do the policy work or don't do the like public work, but it is to say that in our Western world, um, we have lost the ability to be quiet. Mm -hmm. And so there's all of this, like, the frontier of the horizon in front of us. But I think that there is a real loss um, that is true from traditional cultures of the horizon inside us. And I think that the answer that we are seeking in many ways is an ever-deepening into the quietude um, inside our own being. And by moving inward and moving into our own reactivity and moving into our own systems, we actually find that joy grows itself, that we find in that unpacking um, more room for uh, peace. Mm-hmm. Um, again, to, to quote Resme um, Menachem, um, there's this notion that they offer of clean pain versus dirty pain, that because we're all existing in this very traumatized world and that all of us carry some forms of trauma, some of us more than others, that in order to stop sort of blowing our shit through other people, that we have to sit with our own stuff in a mindful and quiet process. And that is going to, by its very nature, be painful. But that kind of introspective experience where you find pain and then there's this like kind of post-traumatic growth that comes out of that or this, this growth that comes from suffering, this teacher in adversity, which is what they call it in Buddhism, you know, that if there's this, this constancy of like regeneration from the pain, that that pain is clean pain. But when we're sort of constantly moving into these spaces of contraction and, and aggression and contraction and aggression, then, you know, we're more so in this space of dirty pain and causing people and ourselves harm and continuing to perpetuate the process of intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the question just then becomes, like, which pain are you going to choose? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you facilitate this kind of process with groups? Because that's also something that you do. And um, I think maybe it's worthwhile just stating how we've come to know each other, mm-hmm. which was through friends, the friend that you mentioned that started the radical meditation for people of color, um, who's also a friend who introduced me to you and your work. And this was a couple of years ago. Um, I ran a a yoga program that was focused on accessibility and we had just started doing a lot of work around social justice and trying to um, include some 
conversation around race and cultural trauma. And so I reached out to you, like, <laughs> you're doing this kind of work around cultural trauma, and um, would you consider coming on to our faculty or teaching with us? And you thought about it for a while. <laughs> a long while. <laughs> about a year. <laughs> and, and then you did. And you led a really profound workshop. And since then, we've been kind of leaning into like, how does your work actually get yeah. bigger now? And yeah. um, so I've had firsthand experience of the way that you facilitate with groups, but um, the issues that you're bringing up around, um, you know, the cellular level of trauma and how do we lean in towards joy and how do we create space for reflection mm -hmm. and curiosity takes on a totally different tone mm -hmm. within a group dynamic. Mm -hmm. Can you speak a little bit about yeah, that and what you've definitely, experienced? Most definitely. Um, so my, my history of leading groups, um, I mean, I've had a lot of history of leading groups, but I used to teach at PCC. A lot of my history of like leading groups was very didactic and so has this very, um, you know, sort of expert in the front and like class members attending um, kind of dynamic to it. And, and I think that some of my slowness to move out of the realm of what I was doing clinically in the office with like one or two people to moving it into like more of a group setting was like, how do I manage all the energies in this space? How do I do this with a sense of confidence? And, you know, and I think that ultimately at the end of the day, the, the quality that allows a facilitator to be really, um, excellent is a kind of coherence. So coherence means or refers to this sort of like way that um, a dynamic system, so a system that has many parts, is working in smooth alignment with itself. Mm -hmm. So all of the parts are working together in a kind of harmonious form. And um, in our traumatology world, um, Coherence is measured by heart rate variability, which refers to the space between heartbeats. And so as a facilitator, in order to like really hold the space in the room, you yourself have to be coherent. Um, you, you, your system has to be in a sort of quietude, mm -hmm. a playfulness, a curiosity, a spaciousness. And I didn't really feel like I had that at that time to be able to move into doing the, the work well. <clears throat> and it and it took a number of like experiences with my patients to be like, I should be doing this. Like I clearly I know how to do this. Like I should be doing this. Um, and so it's been a, a gradual process that I'm like really expanding now um, to being able to do this. I think that some of it is that you know, we always learn from the experiences that we've had. And in the experience of many trauma-informed lectures that I've been to, what has always been problematic has been um, that it leans back into this, like, very didactic frame. And it forgets that most of the people who are curious about trauma or um, working with trauma or exploring trauma or learning about trauma have trauma. Right. <laughs> and... And that during trauma workshops, a lot of stuff comes up. People get really activated. So for me, one of the first things that's really important is to make sure that we're setting up resourcing, walking in the door. And resourcing basically just means that you have an anchor to like your felt sense of safety. 
and really working with making sure that people like have some clear sense of like, okay, we're working into safety and we'll do that maybe by, with some meditations or we'll do that with identifying specific resources like people in your life that make you feel good or spaces in your life that make you feel good. Again, that kind of leaning into joy animals, um, places that you've visited, attractive people that you like to look at. That's my resource. <laughs> <laughs> um, leaning into joy, leaning into joy. <laughs> you know, those, those kinds of things that, that give you a sense of like, <sighs> you know, um, like those, those are what we want to help somebody be anchored to. And then, you know, from this idea that's in somatic experiencing, we want to like dip into a stream and then come back to that safety place, dip into the stream of like distress or, or, um, they call it the trauma vortex and then come back into the place of, of regulation or, or safety. And so then I try to structure my workshop that way. I try to structure it with like, we're going to lean into something that's a little challenging and then we're going to lean away and have discussion or some movement or some calm down and then lean into it and lean lean into it and then lean away. Now, inevitably, especially with this workshop that I have upcoming, that's around um, uh, you know working with traumatized parts. You know, inevitably there is going to be someone in the room who's like overly dysregulated. And so, in those cases, you know, I have this kind of long-term wish to have a co-facilitator help help with those kinds of things. But I create essentially like an escape plan. So if somebody needs to step out of the room because they've become dysregulated, we always have like, this is who you're going to call. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is who you're going to connect with in that moment. Because trauma doesn't become lodged in the body simply just because it's overwhelming to the central nervous system. Trauma becomes lodged in the body because we have a felt sense of being immobilized and isolated in that immobilization. Mm. And so in order to prevent whatever we might do together as a group from becoming um, lodged in the body as trauma, if something big comes up, you know, I want to make sure that a person, if they don't feel comfortable with checking in with me, that they do have a direct access to somebody who they do feel comfortable checking in with so that they can begin to work with discharging the activation that showed up in their system. Yeah, I really appreciated that about the work that you did with us, that the work um, before we got into any kind of conversation about, oh, this is what to look for. This is how it happens. These are the big words. This is your slide presentation. It was check in with yourself right now. Here are these basic tools. Um, Let's go through this protocol. Mm -hmm. And that was so much of a teaching. I mean, just in that, like, how do we prepare ourselves for this conversation? Because the conversation itself is going to be activating. Yeah. And I think that there's a real important honoring of that, that like, um, anybody who's called to to know more or to be in this work, um, you know, really needs tenderness. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there are so many people who don't give a fuck. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, for me, it's really it, it feels really important to be gentle yeah. with those people who are coming in with their like tender bodies and their and their you know systems that need delicacy. Um, you know, I have I have. Uh, people in my life that, you know, really like, I think in some ways to be bombarded by stimuli as a way to sort of like not feel themselves. (laughs) And, um, 
you know, I think that if we're going to create spaces in which people are going to be able to feel themselves, we have to like come out the gate with some tools so that they can hold themselves with tenderness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also, um, I want to ask you about your experience specifically in a program like ours, but I know you do this work elsewhere, mm-hmm. um, of working with white-led organizations, working with white people, talking about racial trauma. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm remembering one of the first meetings that you had with Sarah and I, my um, business partner, and there was a kind of similar process where it was like, okay, uh, before we even talk about the program, let's talk about the trauma <laughs> and let's talk about um, how, you know, just us working together. I'm nothing if not consistent. There's a, there's a phrase that we used in the eating disorder world. I, I also have eating disorder spe- specialty and um, it's uh, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pretty much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it, I, I have to say that it, it was so... Um, powerful the the way that we entered relationship together oh god yeah I think I think it's one of the reasons why I like respect and cherish you so much because you were so I'm gonna get teary again gentle with me about that process like Mm -hmm. like it's the reason we're still working together yeah the reason we're still collaborating it's like it's everything yeah and I think that like um so so to kind of give a little bit of background um you had approached me. I didn't feel ready because I felt too scared to sort of put myself out there in that way. And then when I did feel ready, I felt, um, even in that kind of very first big conversation that we had, I felt, um, what was coming up for me was this history of trauma of having worked specifically in, in, um, mental health organizations that are predominantly staffed by white women. And, um, you know, what my experience has been, and, and I think this is true for a lot of black women in particular or, or female identified people, but also I get a lot of like res- response around this for black men is that like people are really attracted to my energy and they're very attracted to my bigness and they're very attracted to all of my ideas until I'm actually working with them and like in a space with them and then they actually have to deal with me. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 then it becomes this like white fragility, I'm being too aggressive um, sort of thing that almost always ends with a big dark Susan, you know, which almost always ends with this like attack in which I get fired or dismissed or shamed or, you know, cast off or whatever. And I was really afraid of that happening again, mm-hmm. you know, and one of the reasons why I've felt so powerfully attached to my private practice is being in a position where that doesn't happen to me. Um, you know, my clients can always fire me, but that doesn't really happen very often. So, you know, being able to have that conversation and say like, Hey, like this is what's coming up for me. And like, you know, can we move slowly around this and, and to have you be really responsive in that way was really meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, I'm, I'm not a, I don't have a lot of like, um, inherent resistance or, um, unwillingness to work with white allies. I think it's important to work with anybody who is like willing to do this work. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that for those of us who have the tenderness and the sensitivity to want to be, 
like on the front lines working with people in an embodied way and that also have a social justice lens in our background as we're like moving into those um, conversations and and exchanges. I think that as long as the other person is willing to have the conversation, we should keep having it. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that from the perspective of like, you know, it's not my job because I'm a person of color to like grow up this white person. Certainly there are many exchanges in which I don't feel like it's worth it. But I do feel like from a heart-centered place, I can discern who is worth it and who isn't. Like I don't have to have a, a sort of reflexive or or totalitarian sort of like response to all white people because mm-hmm. you know for me it's like can you can you hear me like can you listen to me when I'm upset you know even if maybe you're stumbling or even if like you don't quite get something when I say like hey that didn't sit right with me like can you receive it and for me that's across the board whether we're talking about race or whether we're talking about like you don't like my food and like you insulted it and that hurt my feelings. Like, you know, it's for me, it's the same process. Um, and so anybody, regardless of what their racial background is, um, who is willing to be in dialogue with me in that kind of wholehearted way, I'm going to love and respect. Mm -hmm. Well, it was also, I mean, it, it felt like such a gift that you gave us to have that conversation because I, I know, I know that I'm not alone in this of being a, a white organizer who, um, you know, is trying to learn at the fastest pace I possibly can, <laughs> yeah. you know, about um, the experience of people of color and being inside of a white body where really I learned through um, anecdotal sharing, you know, yeah. other people telling me about what their experience is. I can read about it, but I'm myself not going to have that exact embodied experience. And so there are a lot of, um, assumptions that I might make or, um, assumptions that I might never make that, um, kind of come into play within our relationship. But as a female person and as a queer person dealing with straight people, dealing with, with men, um, in positions of power and, having had many experiences where I am asked to bring something and then am kind of stopped regularly at every step from actually bringing the thing that I'm there to bring (laughs) and the frustration that mounts from that. And then also having had so many feelings of powerlessness, like I don't even know how to speak to this experience that I'm having right now. I feel terrified to speak of it. Um, I, I'm attracted to the opportunity that you're offering me and then simultaneously feeling completely, um, used and disempowered. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so when, I was inviting you to come in, like having this awareness that as a, as a white person who runs this organization, there's an inherent power structure that's set up that I'm asking you to be, um, a a minority in the room and to educate all of us. And that you, like the way that you initiated this dialogue around, okay, well, what is this relationship and what are the things that are going to come up? And these are my experiences and you should know that. Mm -hmm. 
it felt like the biggest sigh of relief in my entire body <laughs> to go, thank fucking God we can have this conversation because okay, I also yeah. never knew, you know, it's like how to initiate that conversation. Is it something you want to talk about? You know, this kind of um, nervousness that I think a lot of white people experience mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, race is a thing. I know it's really a thing. I know it's really important, but yeah. like, I don't know how to talk about it. And a lot of us who've come from liberal backgrounds have are coming from a training that is very deeply embedded around, um, I don't see race. Mm-hmm. And that's the the thing that our parents taught us or that we learned in school where it's to be a good ally is to disregard. Yeah. Um, and, and we don't even have that wording around it, but it's like, oh, no, no, we're equal. Mm-hmm. Or like to be in a space of like fragility or shame around it too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I think for me, one of the things that I notice in my body is that when a white person that I don't know super well brings up race, I have an immediate sort of like um, clenching or or constriction. And sometimes it takes me a little while to um, sort out like was what is this what's safe or not safe here? So an example of that would be like my current um, health provider. She's a chiropractor. You know, maybe our second appointment together, we were doing a piece of energetic work because she's like fucking amazing and does like all of these insanely awesome energetic shamanistic kinds of things. Um, and, um, you know, she said something to me to the effect of like, what I'm feeling here feels like a yoke, you know, mm-hmm. that like, as if like there's a yoke on you from slavery. Wow. This is a small white woman who is very blonde and has like a sort of her voice is like a like high pitch like it's like mm-hmm. a child's voice mm-hmm. and um, I didn't realize until probably a few weeks later that I was having some transference with her around my previous therapist who is also a small white woman who um, helped me in so many ways but also in particular around race, like, failed completely. Mm -hmm. And so when she first brought this up, I had this, like, constriction. And since then, like, I'm so fucking grateful. Like, I'm so grateful that she did. And, like, we've had several conversations around um, her understanding of, like, the weathering theory, which is basically, you know, people of marginalized bodies are constantly having to navigate these stress, toxic stress environments and how it basically wears down our systems. And to have a provider who is white, who I didn't have to initiate the conversation, who totally fucking gets it, is like amazing. Mm -hmm. But it, you know, I think it's really important, again, like if I didn't have the room to be able to sort of sit with my, you know, and what is this and where did it come from and what's the story behind it and, um, you know, where discerning essentially levels of harm. I could have been like, oh, no, fuck her. Mm-hmm. And then, like, never come back and not be receiving the incredible healing that I'm receiving now from working with this person, mm-hmm. which also involves healing that previous um, failure that I had with my previous therapist. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in many ways for me, it's great. I'm grateful to hear you tell me how important and potent that conversation was for you and Sarah, because it was equally potent for me to be able to have 
this space together with you to work through what had been with the last organization of white women that I worked with, an extremely traumatizing event that felt very much like, you know, a trauma enactment of a lynch mob. Mm. And to have some space to be able, I think I even cried during that conversation. I think we both (laughs) (laughs) Like, to have the space to be able to like name that Mm -hmm. and to like say like this is on the table together and like I'm getting teary again like (laughs) like that we are holding that together as like a part of the development of our friendship and our professional relationship Mm -hmm. it's just like fucking beautiful and for me that's what it feels like this whole thing is about Mm -hmm. this is why we do this work (laughs) is to be able to live in a space of belonging and harmony with our fellow humans. Right. And that, yes, race gets to be a part of that, but the humanness yeah. is not um, second, second, you know, citizen mm-hmm. to, to the race. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Adrienne Marie Brown uh, <laughs> a moment ago. There's some tissues right there. <laughs> um, you mentioned Adrienne Marie Brown a moment ago. Um, a few moments ago, but as an inspiration to you. And I was just reading Emergent Strategy last night. And I I love her writing because it's like I just pick up the book, I kind of open it to whatever page, and there's and some gem there. there. You know, <laughs> yeah. I never read it, um, her books front to back, but it's always this kind of like, I'm just going to pick this up and allow it to speak to me. Mm-hmm. And so last night um, we were reading a, a section on vulnerability and the importance of being seen and the work that we do to allow ourselves to be seen and how in order to be seen, we have to be able to, to fail and to be raw and to ask for what we want and to kind of move through this barrier that usually has a lot of condition around it of if I let somebody else see this, I will be rejected. Um, and, and that we move through that discomfort and then, often what happens is actual acceptance on the other side of a pretty profound nature. And I feel like you're one of the the few people in my life who have really been able to um, rest in the space of, okay, we've had different experiences being in, you know, white and black bodies. Okay. Totally different lenses that we're coming from. We're both interested in trauma and healing of trauma and knowing that racial trauma is such a huge part of a larger cultural trauma that we both feel really motivated to somehow address in our lifetimes. And that the way that we can do that is actually just by kind of feeling what is coming up for us and feeling the tenderness of, of our own relating. Yeah. Yeah. feels like such a gift. Absolutely. There's this, um, quote, I'm not going to be able to give the quote exactly because it's like a paragraph from um, Americana, the Chimamanda book. And she, the book is about essentially like a Nigerian woman who comes to the United States and she starts this whole blog basically about Mm -hmm. like how to navigate the white American world and it's pretty hilarious. But in one of the... um, sections of the book, she's sort of talking about the answer, essentially, to racism. Mm. And and she describes it as, like, deeply loving a person of that other, mm-hmm. you know, so whether it's, you know, you're black and the person's white, or, you know, somebody's queer and somebody's straight, or whatever, that, like, being in deep love with another person 
and allowing them to inform you both as with patience and with challenge and just continuing to hang in the relationship and to be, you know, moving in this process of belonging with one another is really how we heal. Yeah. And um, I don't, I feel like one of the things that has been really important to me um, is, you know, being in like integrity. Like Mm -hmm. I don't teach things to my patients that I don't do myself. You know, every single thing that I teach, I also do. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think this piece around our relationship and the way that that carries forward is a part of this like ongoing commitment to like belonging, Mm -hmm. you know, the friends that I have who, when we have like stickiness or difficulty, you know, um, that we sit in the conversation with one another and we like be with one another through it Mm -hmm. is really what deepens and deepens and deepens those connections. So, you know, I think, I think that if we're going to heal as a country, you know, as a, as a community of mm. citizens, like that's the only way it's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to me to, I mean, to think about the, the way that racial trauma and pain function within interracial relations. Okay. Um, so if if I'm with another white person who's had a, a different, say, um, you know, childhood trauma, and the way that I might be able to hold that friend's trauma without necessarily feeling somehow implicit in it or responsible for it. Or, like, accused. Accused, yeah. right, yeah, is, is really different. And that um, one of the kind of processes that I feel like is a constant for me as a white person um, in navigating like um, this true desire to not just be an ally, but to be an accomplice, you know, how do I help dismantle and break this fucking thing that's hurting people that I care about Mm -hmm. is to sit in this conversation of, okay, there's pain that someone has experienced. I might not be the direct perpetrator of that pain, but I hold responsibility in it. I Go ahead. Um, Well, I hold responsibility in it in that, my body is representative of something. And so we were talking about this earlier before we started recording, but what can happen in just the meeting of people coming from different racial backgrounds Mm -hmm. that without doing anything, just by being there, being in my body, that I might be a trigger for someone. And that pain that has potentially nothing to do with me at all has a lot to do with me because there I am as an encapsulation of something that has, has created pain and how to kind of like dislodge my own defensiveness around that and my fear and fragility is such an ongoing process to get to this place where I can go, Oh my God, like I love this person or I have love for this person or I have tenderness Mm -hmm. and compassion for what's going on. And even if there's a barrier, an energetic barrier that I can't be let in, Mm -hmm. that my love or tenderness for them is maybe not going to be received now or ever, I don't have to be in the place of hating myself, feeling defensive, needing to fight against it, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I think that one, you're going to love reading this book, (laughs) Um, My Grandmother's Hand that 
I think that he talks really um, intuitively about this process. I think, um, you know, our sitting together and and the conversation that we were having was a, a great example of like, oh, this is triggering this stuff that I just had with these other people. Um, you know, is a great example of how like just being in a white body is triggering for you or for, for, for somebody who may be interacting with you who's a person of color. But I think the same thing is also true for black people in particular, mm -hmm. that like our bodies are triggers for ancestral white pain yep. white or white trauma. And guilt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's um, this really intense... Um, um, imagining that um, Resme um, Menachem offers in the book where he says basically like so imagine that I give you a puppy and you hold the puppy and you cuddle the puppy and you know you coo over the puppy and you nuzzle the puppy and all of the things that puppies do because they're so damn cute and then you hand the puppy back to me and I pull out a hammer and I beat the puppy to death with the hammer I bludgeon the puppy to death in mm -hmm. front of you. Mm -hmm. Imagine all of the things that would happen in your body as you watch this unfolding. And so if we can hold that aligned with the lynching, yep. you know, like the amount of energetic presence that has to be in one's body around that and the requirement of what it takes to numb out of that, to, to see... Um, this person who's being destroyed as let, not even an animal, because like we wouldn't do that to a puppy, right? We wouldn't do that to a chicken. Uh, and we eat chickens. So like the kind of cruelty that's involved to destroy a living being in that way requires an extreme amount of dissociation. Yeah. And to think about that, you know, generationally, um, being passed down and passed down and passed down and passed down and passed down for, you know, almost, you know, like 600 years yep. is remarkable. Right. And I think that that is a lot of what, you know, again, is that like quiet work of like being with what are, what are my ancestors saying mm -hmm. as this shit comes up? Mm-hmm. And can I do, can I be in the process of the work of that mm -hmm. ancestral pain? Yeah. Um, I had a piece of work just before I saw you with my amazing chiropractor, Dr. Peterson, Caroline Peterson, shout out. <laughs> um, and every single session that we have, like some ancestor shit comes up. And so today, um, my great-grandmother, who's three-quarters Scottish and, you know, for all intents and purposes, when I was a child, I thought she was white. Um, it wasn't actually until after she died that I learned that she was not, <laughs> um, you know, who was never nice to me because of, because I'm dark. Mm -hmm. um, so she came to me in a dream about uh, maybe two and a half months ago or so, and she said, uh, don't forget about me. And I woke up with a very bad feeling because I don't like her and never liked her and contacted my aunt, you know, who's kind of our family historian. 
and asked her, you know, the stuff about how we called her mama. The stuff about mama came up like, you know, what, what, do you, what, what are your thoughts about that? She's also a very spiritual person. And she said, it's funny that you mentioned that because a week ago I had a conversation with my grandmother's cousins um, who my great-grandmother helped to raise and she was very abusive toward. And the other children in the family, my grandmother had four siblings, she was also very abusive toward. And she sort of used my grandmother to facilitate the abuse because my grandmother was the lightest and therefore her favorite. And we did ended up doing this big piece of work together, myself and Dr. Peterson, where my grandmother's spirit was there, my great-grandmother's spirit was there. I had to call in as a resource my great-aunt's spirit in order to help me work with this energy that my great-grandmother had sort of left the family with, this like inherent shame and misery and pain. And we ended up, I ended up using my aunt Olive, who's my great aunt who I had a great relationship with, to sort of soften into being able to clear this terrible shame. Mm. And and as a result, like I felt this sense of peace and like like we're good, you know? Whereas when she came to me in the dream, I was like, I want nothing to do with you. Like fuck off. Um and in my felt sense in my own body, how different I feel now. Like I I actually was in physical pain before my appointment and have been for the last several weeks. And like now I feel really open and spacious and like soft Hmm. inside. And so, I mean, a lot of that is like a complicated way of saying that like these ancestral energies live in our bodies, create pain and illness for us. And that if we can be with them in in whatever way makes sense for us, you know, for me, it's like Dr. Peterson, (laughs) you know, then, um, you know, then, then we can create more healing for ourselves. And then that healing has this capacity to then be like a a new fruit that we get to offer the world. Yeah. Um, Maybe it's just the person in our life who's the closest to us. And maybe it's a huge community of people. It just really depends. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I I think for me, one of the um, realizations that I had about myself fairly early in my um, career teaching yoga was that I had this kind of sensate intuition. So I would pick up people's body feelings really strongly. Totally. And um, especially working around issues of race and trauma where there's this ego layer that can come up and um, the the shell of my identity as a white person can easily get triggered where I'm like, it's not my fault, the defensiveness, da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. these stories mm-hmm. can arise. Um, the more that I kind of lean into how the erasure of pain um, is just another layer of an ongoing trauma and that in allowing myself to feel, to sensitize, um, not in a way of taking responsibility for, like this is, like you said, 600 years, you know, way older than me. Um, But that it's something that I'm also alive for in this moment of awakening where we're having these conversations where you and I can be friends, can have this kind of exchange. Um, 
being able to allow sensations to pass through my body of empathy, of, of imagination, and um, sensing through my own experience, like what, what might these people be going through, what might my friends be going through, or students, um, and also like what of that guilt is yours versus what is your ancestors? Well, it's not even guilt so much as in this moment that I'm talking about as like... Um, can I just be here and try and feel this this pain that we're talking about totally. and not defend against it, not go into a story? If, if a guilt layer comes up to recognize that the guilt layer is also a function of ego, you know, that it's something that as a white person um, I think has been somewhat of a, I'm a little unsure about using this term, but it's what kind of came up. It's like a little bit of a survival strategy for white people, you know, to deal with the the history and the complicitness. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that it's, it's highly possible that that guilt layer is actually like when I think about, um, working with trauma with folks and when we're working through the completion of a trauma, so we're renegotiating the completion, the energies that were not satisfied at the time are the energies that navigate and come to completion. And so it is quite possible that the guilt layer that's showing up is actually ancestral, Mm. that it is actually the guilt of your ancestors, Mm. and that by being willing to feel into it, and and I, I wouldn't go so far as to take ownership of it, but to let your body hold and and complete the process for them, that it gives you more room to be able to um, navigate these experiences in the future without actually having the guilt show up. Right. Yeah, thank you for saying that. I think um, it's good to clarify that, that that I think maybe there's a difference for me in feeling... remorse, you know, and, and something that could be called guilt, but it's, it's deep remorse Yeah, and also a sense of responsibility in the sense that, um, I do have ancestry that, you know, ancestors who are slave owners Mm -hmm. and I am a white person living with white privilege. And so there is a sense of responsibility and guilt that I carry that feels very real. But there's also something that happens that I think happens for a lot of white folks where the the guilt comes up as an ego layer. Mm-hmm. And then this diet, this narrative starts that's like, well, what am I supposed to do about it? I need to do yeah. something about it. Right. And it's like goes into that place. Yeah, that it goes then, into like left brain place. Yeah, and it feels like a shell. You know, it feels yeah. like an immediate hardening because this is such a complex, huge issue that one single person, sure. who the fuck knows what you're supposed to do about it, but actually being able to move through that layer into more of a somatic um, yeah. resonance or embodiment of the remorse. Yeah. It, um, that to me, it, it feels very cleansing on an internal level and like if that doesn't happen there's no possibility for actual relationship absolutely absolutely I mean I think first of all that was like really amazingly said um I think that like Bonnie Badnock who's actually based in Vancouver and who's like one of the most like well-known interpersonal neurobiology people who trained with like Daniel Siegel and does a lot of work around like cardiac coherence and healing trauma through relationship. 
Um, you know, she talks a lot about this like left brain self-protective process that like what the left brain does is it goes into analytical task mode. And we as a, as a um, Western civilization are entrenched in um, task left brain mode. Yeah. And it's, and it's part of our, um, you know, defensive strategy around navigating so much pain with so little um, deep human connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when we then think about the legacy of slavery or other, you know, atrocities that have occurred, um, you know, across the globe that especially the West is, is complicit in or, or participatory in, the, the retreating into left brain orientation is ever greater. Yeah. And so, you know, that sense of like, I think the reflex around, um, you know, what do I do? I mean, I can't tell you black, white, brown, doesn't matter. <laughs> every, every patient that I have mm-hmm. is like, what do I do? Yeah. You know? And, and so this, this willingness to sort of catch yourself and like, what do I do? And to just be, well, like, what do I, what I do is I just be with it. Yeah. I just be with it for my ancestors. I just let I just let their grief and I let their guilt and I let their remorse and I let their pain wash over me and wash through me so that 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 pain is clean pain. Right. Right. And not this like dirty pain again of retreating away from or constricting against the energy so that the energy doesn't move. Right. And in that way, as a person, if you choose to do that, you are in your own small fractal, again, healing this legacy of this like cross-cultural divide that we've struggled with for so many generations, Mm -hmm. you know, both in our country as a country, but in our country before it even became a country. Yeah. Um, You know, and then the many ways in which that reiterates both for um, the people who are actually of the African diaspora, but other people who have then been identified with blackness, even though they're not black, Mm -hmm. you know whether that's um, folks who are queer or folks who are, um, you know, Southeast Asian or, you know, folks who are Latino or whatever, right. folks who are refugees, you know, whatever. Right. Um, earlier we were talking about the culture of disposability. Yes. Let's talk about it. <laughs> can, we, can we bridge from here to there? Mm-hmm. Do you want to... Um, just kind of repeat what this concept is and yeah so um this term comes from um emergent strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown I don't know if it um showed up before that but that's the first place that I um heard you know encountered the term and like immediately I was like yes so um you know one of the things that that she really goes into in the context of that work is, is talking about this idea that like, if we're going to dismantle oppressive systems, we cannot embody the oppressive systems that we are dismantling. And so one of the things about capitalism and about, um, you know, a society that, that others people is it essentially discards people because of what they are or what they look like or what they represent. And, um, that that form or that the processes of um, discarding those people 
can be active, you know, like if we think about the sort of eugenics movement of like the, um, you know, early World War II era, um, like just before World War II in, in the United States, um, or you think about how that manifested in Europe um, around the World War One period of time where like, you know, social Darwinism became like insanely rampant. But, you know, there's also these other ways that we um, manifest uh, our disregard for folks with marginality, which is, you know, through these patterns of reiterative dominance and submission. So, you know, these ways of, um, like, I'll give an example of something that happened today. Uh, I was in a class, uh, an Ayurvedic teacher um, was doing this orientation. I was asking questions. I asked a question that he didn't want to answer. He was very rude to me and kind of dismissive. And maybe about 10 minutes later, a white woman sitting next to me asked essentially the same question and he answered her question. And so in my body, I had this very strong response initially when he dismissed me, but it got worse at that moment. And so I just sat there with all that energy because like no one in the class was going to say anything. Mm. And then a little bit later, uh, maybe another five minutes later, another white woman essentially again asked the same question and he answered her. And so like, you know, then I'm sitting in all of this energy where I'm being submissive in that energy. And I knew because, you know, one, it's not, I, I needed to get information out of the class, but also like, I wasn't so overwhelmed that like I couldn't manage it. But I knew that after the class, I was going to have to do something to discharge that energy from my body. And I did. When we have these systems where we're constantly in a process of like um, submitting, 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 then we're holding all of that energy. And that gets kind of reiterated and reiterated and reiterated across the generations. And so this is the way that we sort of teach people that they're irrelevant or unimportant or unvaluable through these moment-to-moment-to-moment interactions that are really happening um, not from an institutional level, but happening at an interpersonal level. You know, they're happening at an energetic level. And they're happening in very small, nuanced ways. I mean, the majority of the ways that we navigate oppression and oppressive behaviors are through microaggressions of various form. So, you know, when I think about that versus like what I see in the other extreme in our, in our social justice world, you know, in our social justice world, it tends to be, take on a more active form as in like the eugenics movement where, you know, I'll, I'll give an example of something that I saw that really disturbed me. Um, I'm a part of this uh, Facebook group that's specifically for people of color. And somebody posted something about somebody saying something on a dating app to them that felt gross or offensive in some way, which, of course, is not okay. But the response then was to, so they posted a bunch of pictures of this person, you know, basically like screenshotted from the dating app. And then, and then everyone in the group kind of went through this like pile on thread where they were basically like, let's get him. And, and within about 30 minutes, they had found where this person lived. There were pictures of like his like license plate, presumably on, on the thing. I mean, like the, it was like moving into this like terrifying lynch mob. 
And, you know, I'm not going to, like, stand up for this guy. I mean, clearly what he did was wrong. But I think the sort of movement into um, now we're going to cause this person harm or, like, now we're going to attack is is really dangerous and really reiterates the same processes that we're trying to move away from as a radical um, community. I think the other piece or the other way that it shows up that's really distressing is the sort of like overreactivity to every microaggression. And, you know, some microaggressions, it's more helpful for us to just focus on the safe people in our lives who help us discharge the energy rather than trying to get retaliation and retribution against that person. Um, I think it sets up a culture where it makes it really frightening to speak out or to say, hey, I don't agree with that. Or like, hey, maybe this white person is actually okay. Or, or things that may actually need to be said. Um, you know, it creates a culture where we can't actually question one another. And to me, that's very problematic. Like, I don't want to be radical or conservative, I don't want to be in a community where I can't question what is happening around me. And I regularly feel like as a provider who has a reputation to uphold and um, who has, um, you know, patients that I have dedication to, you know, I don't want my name out there smeared. There are regularly times when I don't speak up around things that I see happening in, you know, people of color only spaces that I think are not right, um, because I'm afraid of being essentially like called out and discarded because I have a difference of opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've felt that too within the queer community. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, when I'm thinking about what you're saying, I'm thinking about the sign Aquarius, mm-hmm. <laughs> which of course is the sign of the free thinking radical, but also the sign of the group. Mm-hmm. And that it's this double-edged sword where in its exaltation, we have communities of individuals who are really not frightened to present the new or to differ from the norm because we need that. That's part of pushing mm-hmm. forward. And uh, being able to call something out or bring attention to something is so essential. But within a a kind of group mind that can happen or the detriment of of the Aquarian age, the Aquarian mind, which we're rapidly entering right now, (laughs) Uh um, is this uh, kind of clutching for for the group security Mm -hmm. and that that can happen so easily within a marginalized population too. Um, and the call out culture that, that I've experienced within queer, the queer community, um, not much different from, from what I heard you just talk about feels so similar to the thing that we're fighting against, Mm -hmm. you know, that it's, it's just the same hair trigger reactivity Mm -hmm. and, shutting out and fearfulness Mm -hmm. and quickness to judge. Mm -hmm. Um, And then definitely being in a white body and having people of color in my life and feeling this kind of um, shit, I don't want to say the wrong thing. Um, Because I've experienced so many times, whether it's really explicit or or subtle, the the shutting out. Like, oh, I said something 
Um, it might not have even been the wrong thing. It could have been the wrong time. Mm-hmm. It could have been that it, it wasn't my place to say it. It could have been that I didn't say the right thing at the right time or, or whatever it is. But um, knowing that there's so much trauma, and again, me being in my body is, is a trigger, um, and, and feeling this hesitancy to try, you know, because, like, oh, no, what if I say the wrong thing, even just reaching out or yeah. trying to build a bridge? Yeah. I mean, yeah. (laughs) And I think too, you know, the sense of like, um, belonging is the most compelling human attribute. Like we need to belong in order to survive. And especially for those of us who have had rupture in our attachment histories, which is often true of people of color and, people who are queer and people who have other forms of intergenerational marginalization, like it's even more compelling. So to be sort of reiterating these, you know, really disgusting patterns of, um, you know, aggressively destroying people's, you know, reputations or, or, you know, attempting to sort of ban them or blacklist them or like these kinds of things, um, are really problematic. And I think that we don't, we have to figure out some other way to be able to look a person in the eye and actually have a conversation Mm -hmm. to, to find our places of tenderness. I think a lot of what is happening in particular is people are sort of navigating with such, um, hostility around, um, microaggressions is that, essentially they're in a lizard brain fight or flight response. And, you know, one of the things that I tell my patients and that we work on a lot is don't react from that place. You know, don't engage in the process from that place. Mm -hmm. If you can get a shoehorn gap in there to just have a moment of introspection or a moment of mindfulness before you just blow your dirty pain out, um, great things can come from that. Mm-hmm. And of course, with every person, we all have a tipping point where we, um, where our central nervous system or autonomic nervous system can no longer handle the level of activation that's in the body anymore. And then we're not skillful, but, you know, I think that it's really important for us to seek skillfulness first. You know, if you see something or you hear something that makes you feel some kind of way, and you need to move away from it, feel free to move away from it, but give yourself some room to then explore what's coming up for you around it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you need to stop that person, that's fine, but try to do so from a place of acknowledging that person's humanity. Yeah. And that, you know, we all make mistakes and sometimes things can be misinterpreted or sometimes things can be misheard, especially in a digital forum, you know, right. If we can just create a little bit of grace for the energies that show up in our system that, you know, get us so worked up. Right. And I do, I mean, I do want to say that I think it's really important for people who have lived in marginalized bodies to be able to create boundaries that say, get the fuck away from me. And it doesn't matter, you know, maybe someone is just a trigger just because of what they're wearing, what their skin color is, and, and that it's okay to have... Um, to create a safe space and that like rejecting can be a way that we can connect with others. Like we can, 
we can reject, we can build a, a safe space internally and that that's important. But that just like you're, you're saying, like when we adopt those strategies, there's also a layer of trauma that we're taking on because doing that rejecting requires a lot of energy and it requires right. a certain kind of internal hostility that ultimately also isn't healing. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I think that one of the ways that is helpful to think about it is like, it's, it's like, um, anger is only like one stop on the trauma train and you have to go through all of the pieces of it in order to come to completion. And so one of the things that is organizing in the social justice world is anger, is being in a place of anger and being in a place of anger as a way to have an identity. And that if you're not angry, you no longer exist. Hmm. And that is very problematic. So it keeps us in a place of constantly being reactive and constantly being angry and constantly seeing everything as a threat. And while there is some value in being able to discern what threats are more substantive or, or um, um, threatening than others, it's also really important to be able to discern when is it no longer useful to retreat into limited centers of resource. So, for example, let's say you're going to, like, it's really important for you to have, like, I just need people of color only spaces for a while. Great. So, like, within the context of those people of, of color only spaces, are you then just continuing to, like, lap around the anger? You know, are you using that space to build something that actually is greater or bigger than a place of anger? And as you do that, do you find that you're being dismantled constantly by people getting angry or reactive to something? So I think that those questions and starting to really like unpack how may we be bringing these trauma processes into our spaces of safety or into our um, attempts to build up ourselves in ways that then might actually be destructive or um, dismantling to the things we're trying to build. Um, I think also it's important to realize that like the retreat into people of color only spaces is really necessary at a certain point of recovery, but it can't stop there. It's like, you know, I'll say this and I'm sure I'm going to offend somebody by saying this, but like, I really don't like the 12 step model. I think the 12 step model is really great for a short period of time, but if you look at the culture of the model, it's very shame-oriented, and it's also about never leaving the community. And so what you get is a group of people together who are continuously organized around being addicts, as opposed to a development of a much richer identity. And um, I think in some ways what ends up happening is that when we feel really siloed in um, marginalized only spaces, that's the only place that we can be safe. It prevents this capacity to actually navigate out in the world in ways that actually feel safe and whole and belonging and, and, and justified. And I think, again, in order for us to be whole beings, we have to be able to do that. We have to be able to have other silos of safety among other kinds of people. Otherwise, we're just creating a world of segregation. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for saying all of that. I mean, I definitely, well, first of all, have never been in a 
people of color only thing. <laughs> um, but I, I have been in plenty of queer only spaces or women only spaces um, where there's, I mean, it, it's, it's such a valuable space to be around folks who identify similarly, who can celebrate each other, where we feel safe to just kind of let it all hang out, to be ourselves, to celebrate our own culture, um, and to complain, you know, and process shit in, in a way that like we can't otherwise, Mm -hmm. but that the feeling of, um, kind of like intense us them or the interiority of that space Mm -hmm. when then we go out into the world um that 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 you know it's in the experiences of bridging Mm -hmm. that I find myself I mean I wouldn't say more compelled at all because I feel really compelled to be in safe spaces of celebration around Mm -hmm. queerness like that Mm -hmm. is something that I definitely want and need totally but in in the work of like, okay, I'm going to be um, a liaison and a translator for um, I don't know if you know it's it's straight people or institutions or something around a greater kind of um, curiosity and conversation and a lot of the work that I do with clients to just unpack straightness or unpack um, you know relational normativity or something feels incredibly satisfying to me because it's like, not only does my, um, experience now have room to ripple out, like I have more safety in terms of who I can count on to accept me or Mm -hmm. celebrate with Mm -hmm. me. But that now I'm seeing like, Oh, okay. There's all these straight people out there who are like kind of curious. They're opening up their minds. You know, it feels like, there's a, a rippling and an emergence that's happening outside of me that's exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know where I want to go from there. I but mean, I think that's great. Yeah. I think that's so great. I think that really that really ca- captures. Like, I'll, I'll I'll add bring it back to the twelve step analogy. So, what happens in my work with my patients is they start to really realize that twelve step has kept them locked in this like um, addict, healthy self, aggressive dynamic. Um, and then they begin to want to move away from AA, the ways in which this community, the communities that they have been in and like belonged to for years, react to them with hostility and shame and dismissiveness as they move away, as they begin to try to expand their identity. And I think that there's some similarity there too. Again, like in order to exist, I have to be angry in order to belong to this community. I can't, I can't feel good about white people. (laughs) And like that's problematic if we're going to have a a different worldview, you know, I feel really, I've had conversations with um, people that I've attempted to partner with where I'm like, there's this white person that I know who is like legit and on point and like has their shit together and whatever. And they're like, well, I don't know. I don't know that I really want to deal with that. And I'm just like, do you want to grow or not? (laughs) Like, Like we can't, we can't, we can't continue to sort of like, um, I think if we're going to rise as a radical community, we have to be willing to sit with, like, what is that about for me? Mm-hmm. Am I ever going to be willing to have a space in which this is okay? Like, I was, I had a um, lunch date with a, a brown provider 
um, a Brown therapist. Um, and she essentially told me like, I don't work with white people at all. And I was like, wow. I mean, I, I get that. Like I've had experiences with patients who have engaged with microaggressions with me. And so, and it's hard when that happens. And yet like the work that I do with my white patients around whiteness and around like our working relationship and how race shows up in our working relationship is so fucking powerful. Mm. I would never trade that, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I feel like it's a limiting worldview to sort of like hold, like, I, I just don't want to, right? you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I know in my experiences with, with interracial relationship that the conf it's conflict isn't the right word. The places where we come to the limits of our own perception and understanding and where we are triggering each other and inadvertently insulting and, and stuff like this, that when there's, when there's the ability to actually have the conversations, it can be really hard, but the other side of that, it feels like, um, such a profound cleansing Mm -hmm. and, and I mean, being in a a significant relationship that's interracial, like having, I feel like there's such a gift of, um, just doing these like layers and layers of trauma work, Mm -hmm. recognizing places that I didn't even know were held inside of myself Mm -hmm. and being able to be a friend or be a partner with someone that can release something. Mm -hmm. But in order to get there also, and I would love your perspective and experience with this of, you know, to get to this place where we can expand our circle of safety and not be siloed in our kind of identifying groups. Um, First of all, like requires willingness and trust, but then it also requires knowing that we will be traumatized, right? That like, okay, I'm going to go have a relationship with this person. They like, they will say something that's out of line. They will not get something. That trauma will come up. And so what do we do in those situations or what do you find that's helpful? And I'm kind of bringing this back to our relationship Mm -hmm. and kind of the, the way that I feel like you've, um, really invited such a a transparent space for that kind of process. So I think, I think there's a lot of things I want to say. I think in a lot of ways, like I am a set of contradictions. Like I both hold race really precious. And so, you know, if I'm working with clients or if I'm leading a group, like I'll totally have a POC only group. Like I'll meet people where they are, where their, where their safety is in order to like expand into a greater felt range of safety. But like, I also at the same time don't hold race precious at all in the sense that I see race um, as being both a very unique trauma in its pervasiveness of like institution and history. And at the same time, in terms of how it actually, the actual um, uh, embodied responses that come up for people around race, it's not different from other traumas. Mm. And so you know, this, the, the prescription that I would give anybody, um, around how do we be in relationship with these, you know, deep, um, wounds that are going to come up 
in the context of, you know, relating closely to another person who has a different set of wounds is to just be with them in the same way that you would be with any other trauma and to know that your shit's going to come up and that it's going to be a hard conversation and, and, and to in some ways just like be a little less, not, not, this is not specifically to you, but like to, to allow us to hold race a little looser, mm-hmm. you know, that, um, or whatever the thing is, right. Like the difference or the trauma is that, um, I think what I mean more so is like that there are these ways I think in our culture, because race is something that we're sort of not allowed to talk about. Yeah. Um, when it comes up, we have this like extreme delicacy that we move around it. And I think it's important to be thoughtful, certainly, and it's important to be mindful. But I, I don't think that it's necessary to be as like more delicate with race than you would be around somebody's sexual abuse or that you would be around, um, you know, somebody who's been in a relationship of domestic violence and discussing that. Right. That like we hold all of the traumas with tenderness. Right. You know, both in ourselves and others. And the only difference is that in that exchange, there's implication in both bodies Mm -hmm. and allowing that implication to just be there Mm -hmm. and to just be in the space of like, gosh, it's really hard to talk about. Mm -hmm. And like, there's so much coming up for me. And like, you know, one of the things I really appreciate about you is you are an incredibly, you know, intuitive person in terms of your interoception. And your ability to just say, like, oh, this is what's happening right now. This is what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. This is what's happening right now. And when we're able to speak from that place of, like, this is what's showing up in my body, then it doesn't become around, like, you're a fucking this. You know what I mean? Like, it, it really becomes, like, oh, how might we see one another or feel one another, more importantly? How might we feel one another anew? How might we know what's what's mine and what's not mine? You know, as I've been doing more and more and more and more embodiment work on myself or with myself or with providers working with me, I can discern now because it feels differently what's mine and what's ancestral, what's mm-hmm. not mine, what doesn't feel like mine, what's mine and what's my clients, mm-hmm. you know? And that level of discernment, again, if we're willing to move into the quietude, is a legacy that all humans have. We all have the capacity to do that if we're willing to do the work to sort of burrow into our internal horizon. Yeah, and I think that consciously stepping into relationships that have difference and traumatizing difference when, I mean, knowing that as we do, when we we know we're going to step into an interracial relationship, for example, is such a unique opportunity as well because we can go in kind of primed like okay there's going to be something here I can ready myself with interoception with sensate awareness Um, I can really watch my thoughts I know I'm going to spin out I know that those stories or those layers of ego will arise yeah yeah and can I be kind with myself as it does Mm -hmm. and like also if the, if my partner is white or if, you know, the person that I'm in very close relationship is, with is white, like, can I also be kind with them? Like, the ancestral history that they have, they didn't choose, yeah. you know? 
I mean, unless you're a person who choo- who believes that people choose themselves before they're born, which some people do. But, you know, even if that is the case, what they chose was to enter into a life in which they're going to do this work. Right. And if they're in this conversation with you, like, which I'm assuming that anybody who's listening to this podcast is likely to be doing, like, you know, to have a little bit of, like, care and patience and love and willingness to be in in humanity with one another yeah around it and I think that like you know there are times when it's like I'm really as a person of color I'm really frustrated with I don't want to have a conversation with somebody who doesn't get it like I'm a single person if I go on dates with a with a dude who you know doesn't get it I'm not likely going to go on more dates with him because I already don't feel safe. Yeah. But if I'm with somebody that I really like and then they say something stupid, you know, and then I have a conversation with them about like, hey, like th- what what was that about? You know, I'm more willing to enter into a conversation then. So it's about sort of picking and choosing your battles around who is worth the emotional labor. I think from the person of color perspective, it's like, if you want to love and be in partnership with this person, it's okay to be in emotional labor with them. If you're too depleted to be able to be in emotional labor with them and you want to preserve the relationship, you need to attend to your emotional depletion mm-hmm. outside of the relationship. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is a key. You know, I think that comes up a lot in the radical meditation group of people coming in who are in interracial relationships talking about some partner that they've been, you know, in deep dialogue with around this stuff. But I can see it's not just this relational issue. Like, right. they're exhausted <laughs> in their life. They're exhausted. Yeah. And this is just one more, you know, hay um, feather that, you know, broke the camel's back that's exhausting them further. So, yeah, those are, I guess those are my thoughts. I don't know if that's helpful. <laughs> Everything you said. <laughs> I I feel like I want to um, conclude by marveling at your chart a little bit. Oh, yeah. Um, so I talked a little bit about Neptune conjunct to your ascendant. And so Neptune in Sagittarius is a generational influence. Ooh. It stays in a sign for about 14 years. Mm-hmm. And as a generation of people, I'm part of this generation as well. Um, folks who were born in the 70s and 80s with Neptune and Sag. Neptune is a dissolving influence and it's this kind of spiritual instinct. Like how do we transcend the material illusion that we're in separate bodies? And Sagittarius is a sign of of high teachings, high wisdom, um, academic learning, but also differences. And so Sagittarius is like long distance travel, people who are very different than you. They speak a different language. Mm -hmm. And as a generational force, I can see how the Neptune and Sag generation, part of, of our contingent are the contingent of people who are somatic therapists, body workers, yoga teachers, astrologers, mystics, yep. kind of blending all of these different disciplines going, this is all talking about the same thing. Yeah. And this, this kind of um, access to core intelligence that I would say is that, that galactic kind of yes. core, like mm-hmm. what is the origin of something. I really want to go back to that, that 
first seed of wisdom, like what am I here for? That's so much a part of your perspective is acting. So your ascendant and Neptune are acting in accord in what's called a sextile Mm -hmm. with a stellium. That's more than two planets in Libra. Mm -hmm. And Libra, like, so people talk about Libra and it's like, oh, the beauty and the mirror and the artistic and the relationship and this kind of thing that can be a little bit more superficial or around contracts and ideas of relationship. But in the esoteric tradition, um, Libra is ruled by Uranus, not Venus. Mm -hmm. And it's a sign that um, wakes us up Mm -hmm. and the way that relationship wakes us up. Mm -hmm. And so this uh, this is an influence on your midheaven. And the stellium that you have Mars, Pallas Athena, Saturn, and Pluto all acting together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really kind of want to pull out Pallas Athena. It's one of the goddess asteroids. Mm-hmm. And I know we've talked <laughs> oh, about this. I've always been very attracted to Athena. <laughs> yeah. So this is an archetype of um, the, the daughter born out of her father's head. Mm-hmm. And I think of it as the feminine... Um, that that knows how to survive within the patriarchy or how do we navigate within systems to deliver care. And what, what Pallas is is a strategist. She's a supreme strategist. Mm-hmm. And I, I just love looking at this um, constellation for you in your chart and um, kind of feeling a little bit blown away by... I mean, the way that you, first of all, can articulate, you know, you're such a, a profound speaker, um, but that you can position intelligence and, and cut right through the layers and into this kind of truth. You know, there's the perspective and then, okay, I've got all this data. I've got all these words. I've got all this research. I'm going to back it up. <laughs> I love it. Oh, thank you. I love this thank embodiment. You. Um, and what was I, I was thinking a moment ago of, um, she who lives as a festival of epiphanies. I was (laughs) turning your, your names around. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) And like bringing the epiphany forward, bringing the epiphany forward. Yeah. Yeah. Through your life. I mean, through all of your gestures. Yeah, I hope so. I feel like that's my mission in life, you know, is to is to be in that kind of dialogue all yeah. the time. And, you know, I feel blessed to have people in my life like you who also feel similarly called and are constantly bringing that forward. So thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. Anytime. <laughs> um, so... Aisha is offering a number of workshops this summer in Portland. Can you just um, give a little brief description of these workshops? Yeah. So I'm giving three offerings of a workshop called Within From Without, uh, Self-Healing Skills for um, Trauma. And this is uh, a workshop that helps to work with parts of self. So a lot of times when we've done some trauma work or we've, you know, we've gone to therapy and therapy's been sort of helpful, but we still find that we're fighting against ourselves or we're um, having these really strong reactions or we're sort of stuck in our lives and unable to move forward in a particular way or we're constantly sort of plagued with anxiety or shame. Um, it really has to do with the fact that these really significant parts of self are fragmented from one another 
and are working against one another. And they're working against one another as like a sort of outdated strategy for trying to protect you. And each part has its own way of trying to protect you, and they're not always actually that helpful anymore. And so this workshop is about being able to work with parts that are sabotaging you or that are um, stuffing and exploding or that are um, kind of chronically uh, following you around with this like shame voice. It's about learning how to essentially be your own therapist in relation to these parts and cultivate a kind of what um, Janina Fisher calls attunement bliss amongst these parts so that you live in greater harmony with yourself. It's a really sweet workshop. It involves some ritual from traditional medicine practices. Um, it involves some education about trauma and traumatology. Um, and there are some um, take-home items that will help you continue to work with this in the future. So. Yeah, so there's three offerings. The first one is at North Portland Yoga. Each offering is three sessions, and the sessions are um, three and a half hours each. So it's a pretty substantive workshop that goes into really great detail and is really, really supportive. Um, the dates are July 13th, July 27th, and August 10th at 1.30 p.m. to 4 it's actually 1 p.m. to 4.30 p.m. And you can register at northportlandyoga.com if you're interested in that one. The second one is at Yoga Northwest. It's August 17th, August 31st, and September 14th at 12 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. Again, if you want to register for that one, that's Yoga Northwest, so yogaNWPDX.com. And then the last one will be at Sea Grape Soap and Workshop. Uh, that one will be in the fall. It's October 19th, October 26th, and November 4th at 4 to 7.30 p.m. So that one is the only one where um, it's like each week on. So they're on Saturdays. And um, the other ones have a little bit of gap time. So they, have, um, they go every other week in order to give people space for summer activities. Um, but that one, if you want to register for the Sea Grape one, I don't believe registration is up yet. It won't be up until um, the end of summer. But that one will be at seagrapesoap.com backslash events. And I'm including all of the registration and links as well as the link to Aisha's website in the show notes. If uh, people are interested in working with me, just know at the moment my practice is full, but I'm always carrying a wait list. If people want to um, work with me, just contact me and I'll put you on my wait list. Right. And I'm excited about your offerings getting um, out into the world in even greater capacity. So keep your ears perked for... Um, what what did I just say your name was? <laughs> uh, she oh. who lives... Yeah. As a constant festival of epiphanies. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, everyone, and thanks for joining. Thank you.